The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Sometimes people go vegan because they watch a video, or maybe they've read a book, or maybe they got a diagnosis. But every now and then, Somebody goes vegan as part of a spiritual experience that changes not only their food choices, but, well, pretty much everything was like that with our guest today. Thank you so much for listening. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, host of the Main Street Vegan Program, the spiritual and spirited vegan podcast, which is a kind of new tagline I'm using here and there. I'd be really interested to know what you think about it. And I'll tell you why I'm doing that. When we started the Main Street Vegan show back in 2012, I believe it was the fifth vegan podcast on earth. And now there are hundreds, which is absolutely wonderful. But because there are hundreds, it's time to specialize a little bit. And so the Main Street Vegan Show will always have animal rights. It will always have health. It will always have everything of interest to people who are vegan or pre-vegan. But we're moving it a little bit in the direction of doing more shows that have to do with the bigger picture, the spiritual side of being vegan, which works really beautifully being here on Unity Online Radio. So our our aims dovetail in that way. And today's episode is one of those. My guest is Rishi Chidananda. He spent the last several years as a monk studying the philosophical traditions of India and gaining deep insights into their hidden meaning and timeless practices that are particularly relevant right now. So he uses his experience as a former investment banker and entrepreneur to easily articulate those philosophical teachings that come from India in a meaningful way for those looking to bridge the gap between East and West. Welcome, Rishi. Hi, Victoria. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Looking forward to our conversation. 
Oh, I am too. We've had a couple of private conversations in the past and they meant a lot. And you were also part of a, a Yoga Goes Vegan event that happened last spring that people really loved. So this is going to be fun. So I always love to start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. One would think that if you're a monk, you grew up in a very religious family. Was that how it happened? Uh, no, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on the way you look at it, uh, I, I very much grew up in a westernized household uh, in the States, in actually uh, in, in the uh, state of Ohio uh, and the city of Cleveland. So you were living your life and being very successful in the way that we're told were supposed to be successful. You were doing investment banking of all things. How was that going? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think even though I have dark skin and I look very much Indian, I, I was furthest away from it, you can imagine. I, I was born in India, but I moved, my mother moved to the States when I was very, very little. So most of my life I spent up, I grew up very westernized. And so, you know, as, a, as I said, I had a very uh, American lifestyle. I graduated high school, went to Ohio State University, graduated at the top of my class in finance and went into investment banking. And, you know, during this whole process, my focus wasn't necessarily on anything spiritual. It was mostly about what everybody really strives towards, which is to make money, to have power, to have influence. And that was really my goal, to make as much money as, po as possible, have as much influence as possible. And that's what really drove me uh, to really succeed in investment banking. So I spent many years in investment banking, uh, very much focused on the rat race, if you will, and, and trying to uh, make as much money as possible. It's funny when you you talked about money, power, and influence. I wonder why nobody has ever come up with an, an MPI ramp, ranking system where you could judge yourself every day or every month on where am I in my MPI, how much money, how much power, how much influence, because it certainly <laughs> seems like that's what people are looking for. So I guess it made you really happy, huh? Um, you know, it made... I didn't know anything better. You know, a lot of the times when you don't, you've not tasted the sweetness of champagne, uh, you might still just be content with something lower, right? Only when you taste something sweet, only when you taste something different, do you understand what you've missed out on. So during this time, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say I was happy, but I also wouldn't necessarily say I was looking for anything. I was very much content with the project, uh, project, trajectory of my life and, and how it was sort of modeled out for me. And then what happened? And then so what happened was that after spending about seven years or so in investment banking, I was I had a I was I had a lot of money. I was quite successful at a very young age. And at the same time I was dating a high school sweetheart. Uh, we had broken up a few times during college, <laughs> like I think most people when they go to college, but somehow we had a consistent relationship. And one day I went to Vegas with my friends and I came back from Vegas and there was a thought in my head 
that just said, you have to get married, you have to get married, you have to get married. And that thought would not leave my head. It was something that was very strong. So I said, okay, I went to the jewelry store, I got a, a diamond ring, and I went and I proposed to her at our favorite place that we would always go to. And um, I thought this was the moment that I was, I thought this moment was going to make me happy. This moment was sort of a culmination of, of what people tell us to do, right? In the world, people tells us we should get married, we should do this, we should do that. So I thought by doing this, there'll be another hit of happiness. But rather than that, something really interesting happened. As soon as she said yes, I felt this deep sense of emptiness and I could not explain it. It just sort of washed over me like you would imagine a wave washing over you when you're swimming in an ocean. And I didn't understand where it was coming from. Everybody was happy. Her family was happy. My family was happy. And um, she was Italian. I'm Indian. So you can imagine how big the wedding was going to be. And the wedding was sort of progressing along. But I just the planning for the wedding was progressing along. But I just the feeling started to get stronger and stronger. And so one day, I think maybe two, three months before the wedding actually took place, um, we decided to have a coffee together. And I wanted to sort of talk about this feelings. And we sat down. And I remember she came and she sat down and she looked at me like she was possessed by something. And she just said, I just need to tell you that you will never, if you stay with me, we'll have children, we'll have a minivan, we'll have a house. Everything will be great, but you will never be happy. So it's not meant for you to live this life. It's not meant for you to be here with me. You're meant to do other things in this life. And if you stay Everything will be perfect, but you'll never be happy. And it was almost like it wasn't even her speaking. She wasn't spiritual or anything in any way, but it just sort of came uh, from nowhere. <laughs> and it sort of, it sort of sh uh, set me in a shock. And we talked and we just decided, okay, let's take a break. Let's just take a break, call off everything and just um, explore what is going on, what's happening. And then that was sort of the shift to my next phase of life. <laughs> and what was that? Well, so what happened was that um, once we decided to take a break, I didn't have spirituality in my life. I didn't have anything really in my life, which was really meaningful in any way. And so I knew I did only what I knew to do, which was to go out and get drunk and party and drugs and all of those things all of the time, trying to find some reason for this loneliness that I felt inside. And at that point, there was a cousin of mine that was coming from India and he stayed with me. He was watching how I was living and he said, you know, you have to change. If you continue to live like this, it's not going to work out for you. It's going to end up badly. So I said, okay, what do I do? Tell me. And he said, read this book. So he gave me this book called Autobiography of a Yogi, which is a beautiful book about a saint a hundred years ago that came to America and spread Vedic philosophy, Eastern philosophy, especially a meditation practice called Kriya Yoga. And it was a, it was a really interesting book. And 
you know, there's all types of crazy things in the book. Uh, yogis living for 5,000 years, bi-location, guru-disciple relationship, Kriya Yoga. And the book itself was quite big, but I finished it in, in about three, four days. It was, I was just fascinated by it. And once I finished, though, ironically, I was like, you know, this book is crazy. None of this stuff exists. None of this stuff can be true. And I just put it away. But what's really interesting is that subconsciously there was something churning inside of me. Uh, something was happening because I would go out to the clubs, but I would not like to drink. I just found it like, why am I doing this? Why am I getting drunk? And, I, and of course, I would do it because of the social pressures. Um, but it was just not something that I particularly enjoyed. Even eating meat, I was eating steaks and meet every single day and after the book for some reason I just it was almost like I did it because that was all the food there was this is what everybody knew so okay I'll do it but it was I, I was there was just a feeling inside of me like oh I, it just didn't sit easy for me anymore and I couldn't put two and two together right I couldn't say this are the reasons why I'm not doing it because I was also a novice at the time. I knew nothing about spirituality. I knew nothing about philosophies such as Ahimsa. So for me, it didn't make a lot of sense why I was feeling this way, but I knew that I was. And so a lot of times there's a saying, the heart leads and the mind catches up later. <laughs> and that's kind of what was happening to me. These feelings were invoking inside of me, but I could not explain why it was happening. And ultimately that book was a trigger to that. <clears throat> So with that, I started to um, ponder on the more existential things of life, right? things that I never thought about, never cared about, never really devoted any time to. Slowly, I started to think about and I just felt like, you know what? I need to go. I need to leave Cleveland. I need to leave this space and I just need to spend a little bit of time traveling the world. <clears throat> so I planned this whole trip where I would go to Italy, Spain, Germany, and then I would also visit the Himalayas because I really had sort of a, um, a draw to the Himalayan mountains. I couldn't explain why. It wasn't even necessarily anything spiritual, but I, but I really enjoyed it. And so I remember the last day I was at Cleveland. I was at the bar with my friends after I planned this trip, not knowing what was going to happen. And I told my friends, hey, I'm leaving for a month to travel. And they all laughed at me and they said, are you crazy? Like, you're going to get sick of it. You're going to want to come back. And I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. But I just have to do this. I feel that I have to do this. And they're like, OK, whatever. And that night I drank alcohol. I ate meat and I was with somebody. And that was the last time that I did any of those three things. I woke up in the morning. I caught a plane to India and uh, a whole new phase of my life began. Well, lots of people go to India, but it doesn't necessarily bring a whole new phase. So what happened to you? So once I landed in India, I landed in a small town called Rishikesh. And um, it's a beautiful space. And a lot of the times these places are very, very, there's a lot of energy there, right? Uh, there's a lot of positivity there. I, I guess that's the best way to put it. Um, you know, everything is a frequency. Everything is a vibration. 
if you hang around a smoker long enough, you'll become a smoker. If you hang around a saint long enough, you'll become a saint. So in that way, certain <laughs> people, certain places have a very positive frequency and vibration. And this is one of those places. So when I went there, my body was sort of adjusting to this whole new reality that I was put in. There was no alcohol, there was no meat. And I started to feel very, very sick. It was almost a purification that was that was happening to me. And as I was feeling the sickness, I, I sort of made my way to the Ganga, which is a river that ran adjacent to the place I was staying. And I just looked at the river, I looked at her and I said, if there's a God, if there's something out there, why do I feel so alone? And it was just a very sincere call. I didn't know who I was calling to, but it was just a very sincere call to understand what is happening with me. Why did I feel so empty? Why did I feel so alone? And so as I made that call, the next day there was a monk and he was staying in the same place that I was. And what was really interesting is that his teacher had told him three months earlier, go to this day, go to this place on this day and wait there because something is going to happen. And this monk was from South Africa. So he had booked a ticket and he had arrived in Rishikesh and was waiting there due to the orders of his spiritual teacher, not knowing what the reason was. So it's a, it was a winter time, so there wasn't a lot of tourists. It was just me and him and a few others. And when I saw him across the distance, I was very much drawn to him for reasons I could not explain. And he was sitting by the river, watching the river flow on a bench. And I went and I sat next to him. I said, who are you? What are you? And he said, I'm a monk. And I said, what's a monk? And he tried to explain it to me. And he said, you know, I have a teacher. His name is Paramahamsa Sri Swami Vishwananda. Uh, he's an enlightened being. And he just starts to go on and on and on, right? And I'm listening and I'm like, this guy is crazy. And this stuff that can't exist. Uh, enlightened beings, miracles. I'm like, no, this is completely not true. I was like, this is a very bad idea for me to even sit down with this person. So I literally jump up from the bench to run away. And as I start to walk away, I take one step and I felt like a veil dropped. Imagine that you were watching black and white TV your whole life. And then all of a sudden, someone gave you HD TV your whole perspective changes, right? So in the same way, I felt like a veil dropped. And as I started to look outside into my environment, I started to perceive every detail of life. A lot of times when we walk, we, we walk with our heads down, not just physically, but also metaphysically. We, we don't notice the beauty of life. We don't notice the flowers, we don't notice all of the small things that makes this world so beautiful. And in this moment, I almost felt like everything just awakened to me and I could feel every rose. I could feel an insect, a worm, a leaf blowing in the wind. And I just felt an immense amount of love for all of creation. I felt an immense amount of love for the animals, for all of creation. And this filled me with overwhelming joy that flooded my heart and brought tears to my eyes and I just fell on the ground and I just started to cry and the monk was looking at me and saying what is the matter with you and I said I don't know 
I have no idea what's going on with me. I have no idea what's happening to me. And he said, okay. And I said, what do I do? And he said, well, my teacher will be here in 20 days for something called the Maha Kumbh Mela that happens every 144 years. So there's a moment in time due to the planets and the stars and alignment where if you take a dip in the Ganga in a specific space, it's supposed to fast forward your spiritual evolution. So millions of people from all around the world were coming to this one particular place to take this dip that happens every 144 years. And I found myself randomly in India, in that location, 20 days from it happening. And so I said, okay, I canceled the rest of my trip. I waited for my teacher. And finally the day came when he arrived. And that I think brings me to the next phase in my journey. Uh, yes. And so what did you do? <laughs> so the night came when he arrived and I couldn't wait any longer. And it was one o'clock in the morning and I went and I met him and he was waiting for me and he looked at me with a smile and he took my hand and he said, what do you want with life? And I said, I want to be happy. And he smiled and he says, don't worry, you will be happy. And he said, spend some time with me during the Kumamela. So I said, okay. And I canceled my trip and I just spent the next 14 days with him. And just being around the presence of an enlightened being, of a teacher that is in complete connection to the divine. It's almost like if you're walking around in the cold, in the middle of the desert in the night, and there was no fire. And you perceive a fire and you go to the fire and the fire warms you. It's the same thing when you come in contact with a saint in this in this world. The saint radiates that love. And when you're around that person or that being, you feel that love. But that's not enough, right? At some point, you're going to have to learn to make your own fire. So the saint serves two purposes. One is to warm you initially. And the second is to teach you to how you how to make your own fire. So he gave me both of those. He gave me the first experience of being with him in the coldness of the world. And then he said, well, come and spend some time with me in the ashram and I'll teach you how to make your own fire. And so I said, okay. So I just directly went straight from India directly to the ashram, which is located in Germany, in, near Frankfurt, Germany, actually. And um, I was there for a few weeks and, you know, there's many, many stories of me being there, which I could speak about. Um, <laughs> it can take up the entire, the entire interview, so I won't go so much into it, but I had many, many insights on life, many, many opportunities to see the things that I need to work on, see the things that I need to let go. Because ultimately we're suppressing so much, right? The question is, who are you? You're not even the same person that's that was there when we first started this um, conversation. You weren't even the same person 10 years ago or 20 years ago. You won't even be the same person 10 years from now. The way that you view the world changes, your entire body also changes. So the question becomes, who are you? And so most of our most of the life, most of our life, we go around identifying with a very limited version of ourselves, which causes us anxiety, stress, and all of those other things that as humans we struggle. But once we understand the eternal nature of our self, then all of those things shed away, they fade away. 
and we step into our our higher self where we can ultimately do the duty that we've been given in the best way possible. So in that way, I, I noticed so many of the things that I needed to shed that I carried with me, habits, patterns, behaviors. And so I was only supposed to spend about two weeks there, three weeks, three weeks turned into one year, two years, three years. Next thing I knew, I was there for seven years, eight years actually. And uh, I never went back to the States. I just spent my time in the ashram those eight years. Um, I learned a lot about spirituality, learned a lot about myself. And later on, as I progressed on the spiritual path, I was also given opportunities to speak on the path, especially the Bhagavad Gita. And it was a very beautiful experience. And just about, uh, I would say, six to seven months ago is when I um, left the ashram to come to New York City, uh, to the United States in general, and speak about spirituality, to speak on these topics and to offer meditations and practices that might help others also to realize their true self. So of the journey. <laughs> well, that, that is, is such an incredible story. I'm so glad we have the whole hour so we can talk a little bit more about how listeners can apply some of these things to their own lives. But just to hear your story was absolutely fabulous. I love it that you're in New York City. You're like the Wall Street Rishi. <laughs> <laughs> so that is, that is so cool. And I appreciate, too, that you mentioned um, the book, Autobiography of a Yogi, which just seems magical on so many people's paths. In fact, our guest six weeks ago today was a medical doctor, a radiologist from Brooklyn named Dr. Sumit Ball. And that book was also the turnaround in his life. And, you know, he's just in Brooklyn, so maybe you guys need to meet. Everybody else, stay with us through these announcements. We'll be back with more with Rishi Chidananda. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Wasn't that a dazzling story? Don't you love stories? We'll remember that forever. It's just how we're wired as humans. We're a storytelling species. So a few announcements. The first ever 
Vegan Spirituality Forum and Retreat is happening at Unity Village, Missouri, October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 2021. So Unity Village is where this podcast comes from, where all of the Unity online radio programming uh, generates. And it's a beautiful place. Oh, when we talk about these beautiful spiritual places around the world, Unity Village is absolutely one of those. So do check that out. You can just Google Vegan Spirituality Forum and Retreat, or you can use the tinyurl.com slash spearvegan, S-P-I-R-V-E-G-A-N. And I'll put that in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. And speaking of MainStreetVegan.net, you can find all sorts of information there, but especially about Main Street Vegan Academy. So if you've been thinking about bringing your vegan outreach to the next level, getting yourself certified as a vegan lifestyle coach and educator, maybe starting a vegan business, a lot of our graduates have, do check that program out at MainStreetVegan.net. Our next classes, uh, eight days, couple of half days, um, the weekends of August 21 and 28, and then we skip those weekends of the Jewish high holidays, and then we're back September 18 and 25. Incredible faculty, fabulous programming, and really a wonderful, loving environment while you're in class and going forward, because a lot of the graduates stay really close and we help each other out. So have a look and you can also sign up for a a phone chat or Skype chat uh, with me if you have questions or if you need any help or if there's anything I can do to make it easier for you to take this step. I would absolutely love to do that. And finally, final announcement, good things come in threes. The Compassion Consortium is well underway. The Compassion Consortium, you could think of it as a church for ahimsa or a non-denominational, interfaith, interspiritual, interspecies organization that you don't have to join. You can just visit. And on the fourth Sunday of every Sunday, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, we have a beautiful celebration service that honors all beings. So our special guest this Sunday, July 25th, is someone who has been a guest on this program, and he is Gopal Patel, wonderful um, environmentalist, who's going to talk about uh, animals, ahimsa, and environmentalism in the Hindu faith, continuing with a theme. So you're all caught up now, and we also have the information about today's wonderful guest, Rishi Shidananda. on the show notes, uh, if you just want to take note right now, his website is rishi, R-I-S-H-I dot love, beautiful website. His Instagram, rishi underscore chidananda. He does some wonderful, wonderful videos there on Instagram. So do have a look. Okay, back to this stunning conversation. And thank you again for being here and doing this. So, you're in New York City. What are you doing here? Um, so 
for me, you know, there's a, a mixture of a few things. <laughs> when I left the ashram after eight years, there's, you know, in the ashram, it's not like an investment banking where you go and you you make money and as you move higher in the chain, you get more money. It doesn't really work like that. You don't make any money, actually. Uh, you're, you're essentially, you have no possessions whatsoever. All you get is a flight ticket back. And But the thing is, you know, when you work in investment banking, you strive to be a millionaire of the world. When you are in an ashram, you strive to become a millionaire of the heart. And when you become a millionaire of the heart, in that space, that joy and that happiness that you feel is not dependent on anything external. So all of the things in the world, money, relationships, everything that we find joy in is dependent on something external. And if that external thing fades, goes away with time, our happiness also goes away. But when that joy comes from something inside of you, something eternal, regardless of what is happening around you, you are still continuously feeling that joy. That's where true freedom is. That's the joy that does not come for any reason and therefore will not leave for any reason. So in that way, when I left the ashram, I just had a flight take it back and I knew that things were always going to work out. I had a desire to be of service to the world, uh, to be of service to people and to just spread the love of the divine. And I didn't necessarily know how I was going to do it. And when I arrived, uh, there was a family that sponsored me that asked me to come and stay with them. And I said, sure. And so I moved in with them and I started to do a lot of different physical events. It was during COVID, so of course that's not as, um, you, can't, you can't do as much, but I enjoyed it. We were doing a lot of physical OM chantings, which are when we come together in a group and we chant OM. I was doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one sessions where we would speak on Vedanta and the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. I was also serving a lot of homeless people, uh, giving them food and, and helping them in whatever way that I can. So, you know, for me, I don't necessarily have a set plan. I'm sort of like a ball kicked by God. Wherever he kicks me, I just go. Uh, I don't complain. And so, the, you know, there's so many opportunities where he puts me in for service. So my whole thing is just to serve in whatever way that I can. And, you know, there was a beautiful moment um, after I spent some time with the family, I also wanted to spend a little bit of time by myself. So I had gotten an Airbnb that I was living in for a few months. And I remember after one month of living there or so, I was uh, on the phone and the Airbnb space, you can imagine in Brooklyn, there's four or five rooms all in one complex. And so I was speaking to somebody on the phone, a fellow monk, and I was just laughing with him saying, you know, God's testing. God's giving me a really big test. Uh, he's just making me eat cereal and banana every day. So at the time, I just didn't have the, uh, the time to really cook or to do all of those things. So I would just every day just eat cereal and some banana. And I was just joking with him. And I finished having that conversation and um, I hang up the phone and I hear a knock on the door. And uh, it was this woman. She had come, she had moved to New York City from, from uh, Texas. And she was there to, um, uh, to be a nurse. And she was helping um, because she could make more money there than in Texas. And she said, you know, 
I overheard you. I didn't mean to eavesdrop that um, you're not really eating any food. And I was wondering if I can cook for you. So obviously in on the Indian spiritual path, cooking for a monk is a, is a big grace, right? People do that and it's perceived that it's a big grace for them. And of course, she didn't know any of these things. She didn't even know I was a monk. But she just from her heart offered that. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll accept that. Um, and she, she wasn't a vegetarian. And I said, you know, I'm a vegetarian. I only eat beans and rice. She said, sure, I can cook you beans and rice. So she made the food. And then I looked at her and I said, you know, so I have nothing to offer you. Um, I just have a meditation and I could do the meditation with you every day if, you know, if you want to cook some food for me once in a while. And she said, yeah, I'd love that. So for the next 40 days, we just... Every day we would meditate. And after 40 days, she stopped eating meat. She stopped drinking alcohol. She completely changed her life. She started to go on the spiritual path, read the Bhagavad Gita, and her whole life changed. And of course, I'm not living in that same place anymore. And she's moved back to Texas, but we're constantly in touch. And so it's just these small moments that I find myself being put in. And so I don't think of big, big things or big, big things that I need to accomplish but just take every opportunity to be of service in whatever way the divine wants for me. That is really beautiful. So I understand that it's, it's traditional uh, for a, a religious Hindu to be vegetarian. And I know a lot of, of younger uh, Hindus and Jains are, are becoming vegan. Why are you vegan? So, you know, I think in the beginning, before I became spiritual, I, I, of course, ate meat and I did all of those things. And at that time, you know, a lot of the times when you're not necessarily on the spiritual path, you're very much focused on all of the material things in the world. So your sensitivity becomes very dead. You don't have this sensitivity to life. You don't have these more subtle perceptions of life. And so you're very much focused on just gratifying your senses and that's all you care about right but as you start to go on a spiritual path what you see is that you start to become more sensitive to various energies sensitive to life itself and for me becoming a vegan was just a natural progression on the spiritual journey it was just a natural progression to becoming more sensitive to life because you know in Vedic philosophy in Hinduism. It's not about killing or not killing. Many people make that mistake. It's actually the philosophy Ahimsa means doing the least harm possible. So a lot of the times, you know, if you're an Eskimo in Antarctica and you had to kill a fish to eat, uh, we consider that to be okay. But if you're living in this technologically advanced world and you are killing even though you don't necessarily need it to survive, then it becomes an act for self-gratification rather than selflessness, rather than being selfless to the, to the world. And so for me, it's just more that sensitivity that I don't want to create more harm. I don't want to cause harm if I don't have to, to survive. And so that makes me want to be a vegan. That makes me not want to kill animals because ultimately... I, I feel that that act itself is going against a lot of the things that I live for and I, and I speak about. Well, that's so beautifully explained. 
So you, you have a question here. I, I think my listeners know that uh, I have a little bit of uh, contact with, with guests prior to the show and ask if there's anything in particular that they want to talk about. And you've mentioned practical steps to connect to the heart. So what are those? <laughs> so I would say the practical steps would be three things. So we, we call it the three S's, if you will. So you see, for most of us, most 99.9% of us, we're confused about our duty. We're confused about if we should continue to work in our specific job. Um, we're confused about if we should break up with somebody, we should stay with somebody, if we should go left, if we should go right. We're constantly confused about our duties that we've been given in this world, or we call it dharma, if you will. So we're constantly confused about our dharma. And this is 99.9% .9 of us. And the confusion comes from our emotions getting the best of us, fear, anxiety, even things like overexcitement. They cloud the judgment and doesn't allow us to exercise our discernment to take the right actions to move forward. So as we step more and more into our duty, into our dharma, it's said that by doing that dharma in a space of selflessness, from the space of the heart, that's where we find true peace. So as long as we continue to do the duty from the mind, it's very difficult. But when we drop into the heart, the heart is considered intuition, discernment, the voice of the soul. And when we operate from the space of the heart, that's where we can truly find peace, meaning and purpose in our everyday life. So the goal of spirituality is very simple. It's just 40 centimeters or maybe 12 inches. It's just from the mind to the heart. Right. Mm -hmm. If you take that journey and you succeed, you've accomplished the goal of life. So that's what we're constantly striving towards. And when we operate from the space of the senses, when we give into our sense gratification, when we cause harm to animals or to beings, knowing that we don't necessarily need to take part in that, that just solidifies us being more in the mind. It does not allow us to drop to the heart. So the practices that we need to cultivate that I would recommend, practical steps, are three things. So the first is what I call, what not I call, but what Sanatana Dharma or, or Hinduism calls seva. So seva is selfless service. It's some type of act that you do for something other than yourself. Right? So being an activist to bring forward veganism to help the animals, that is seva. You're not necessarily getting anything tangible out of that, but you're doing it because of the love that you have for the animals. So I would encourage everybody to partake in some type of seva some type of practice that you do that does not necessarily have any immediate outcome for you. And you're doing it to help something, another being, whether it's an animal or a human or whatever it might be. So in that way, I'm sure you can uh, speak to your listeners about many vegan events that you might be having, uh, activist events that are happening. And these are great opportunities to attend and to do seva. Automatically, when you take part in this, it starts to help you to detach from the ego. The ego is something that constantly keeps us separate from others. It constantly makes us think we're better or worse than others. So it makes us separate ourselves from all of this world. And so that practice helps to transcend the ego. Second thing is called sadhana. 
which is a individual meditation practice that you can do every single day, whether it's five minutes, 10 minutes or 20 minutes, whatever it might be. It might be as simple as just a few breathing techniques. The sadhana done constantly will help you to drop more into the heart, will help you to find more clarity in your dharma. And thirdly, it's called sangha. Sangha is community. To try and find a community that can help you to grow on the spiritual journey. Right? We all need support. We all need others. So by actively looking for a community, by letting go of old attachments, old energies that hold you back, you make space to make new people that can help you to grow on the spiritual journey rather than suppress you. So to actively find a Sangha and to become part of the Sangha or community is very important. So if you could every month do a little bit of seva, selfless service, every day do a little bit of sadhana, meditation, and constantly try and find and belong to a Sangha or community that helps you to grow spiritually. Those three things will really help you to drop from the mind to the heart. That is lovely and so practical. So thank you very, very much for that. So I, I want to ask something that I think a lot of people who are involved in animal liberation feel very deeply. And that is people have been praying for a long time for animals at the end of Every yoga class just about, there's loka, samasta, sukhino, bhavantu, may all that has life be free from suffering. And thousands of years, probably before there were yoga classes, as we know of them, people were saying this prayer, but the animals are still suffering. So we're all doing what we're doing out on the action level, but does it really help to do prayer to do something on the internal level too absolutely you know when that may all beings be free we have to really look at that statement what is it to be free i would ask the question are you free is bill gates free is elon musk free who is actually free so in Sanatana Dharma or Hinduism, freedom comes when we understand our true nature, when we understand that we are this eternal self, this Atma. That's where true freedom comes. So I would argue we're no more free than an animal because in that way we don't know our true nature. So when we understand that and we understand what freedom is, we see and ask ourselves, what is the point of this world? And it said that this world is a field of duality. So duality is the what the Atma comes into this world to experience. And so the Atma is always one with the divine. But sometimes it longs to have an experience of the divine that it's not felt before. Sometimes to grow stronger in the light, we must also know what it feels like to experience darkness. To understand and experience light more an understanding of darkness aids in that. So this world is a field where the Atma can experience duality, can experience good and bad, heat and gold, pleasure and pain, suffering and pleasure. 
So in that way, this world itself will never be perfect. It was never designed to be perfect. It's consistent. It's constantly going to be in a space of duality. Of course, there are yugas or, or ages in creation where things are much higher in frequency and ages in creation when it's lower in frequency. Uh, for example, we live in an age called Kali Yuga, which is very low in frequency. There's much more harm. There's much more killing. There's much more actions done for our own desires. Um, in a Satya Yuga or an age prior, it was much less, but duality still existed. Right. So in that way, it's never going to be perfect. That was never the case. But at the same time, understanding this, it becomes almost paradoxical. Right. So even though there is duality and duality will exist, we still have an option every day to wake up and be of service. So in that way, we're constantly praying for beings to be free from this world and sometimes to do that, we must go through various experiences and suffering. And so I wouldn't necessarily look at just external suffering as the only way to be free. It's really about understanding the Atma. So that being said, with the animals, you know, of course, it's really difficult what's happening. And of course, we have to try our best. And our prayers do help. They do uplift consciousness. Imagine even what you're doing now. Imagine all the vegans doing what they're doing. It's impacting the world. People are changing. There is a transformation happening. So the prayers are working, right? So the prayers are having an influence, are impacting the world, but might not be in the way that we, that we see. Right? We might want things to be perfect. We might want that every animal is free. And unfortunately, that's not the case. So what the divine asks of us is, Accept that we are in duality, but try our best every day to be of service to the world. Mm -hmm. And our service makes a difference. And to accept and be at peace with that and strive every day to do more and more and more. But don't become attached to the results. Understand that sometimes in this world of duality, these things exist. And that's okay also. So even though this world will never be perfect, the work that we do to make it better is still important. That's still seva, correct? Exactly. Even though this world is not perfect, that doesn't mean that we just sit back and say, oh, everything is whatever, everything is God's will. No. Even though the world is not perfect and it never will be, we must constantly strive to do service, selfless service, to help others, to make a difference in the best way that we can. But don't be attached to the results. Right. So we can't go out and do something and then we don't see a change and then we become depressed and we say, OK, we're never going to do it again. So when we don't become attached to the results and every day we give our best, we find peace in ourselves. And also we help those that um, are meant to be helped, those that are, are longing for that. So your prayers do make a huge difference. Oh, that's beautiful. We have two minutes, and I, I didn't discuss this with you earlier, and I don't mean to be putting you on the spot, but it just feels like I would love it if you could kind of close us out with some sort of little blessing, two minutes or less. <laughs> could you do that? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I could do that. I'll recite a small mantra, and I'll just explain a little bit of it. Um Om Agnyanantimirandasya Gyanachana Shalakaya 
Chakshurun militam yena, tasme shri gurave So this mantra is invoking the blessing of the teachers. And for so many of you listening, you know, you might not have the ability to meet an enlightened being, to have that same story that I had. But I also want all of you to remember that nature can be your biggest teacher. Uh, nature can help you to learn so many things about yourself and the animals that you're protecting and the work that you're doing. That goes a long way and nature becomes your teacher and nature will teach you so many beautiful things about life that can ultimately help you to grow on the spiritual path. So I just wanted to do this veneration for all of the teachers, the enlightened beings, the yogis, the suffering animals that all help us to provide insights on how to live this life, to walk this path and ultimately uh, realize our true self. Thank you. That is so special. And when people want to find you, uh, website, Instagram, where do they go? Uh, yes, you can just go on my website or on Instagram. I think we'll be doing a retreat in November. It's going to be a vegan retreat where we're going to talk about philosophy as well as do a lot of different fire rituals. Uh, so it's going to be actually a very beautiful experience. So if you'd like to take part, you can always feel free to reach out to me. Oh, I would like to take part. <laughs> Everybody listening, wouldn't you like to take part? Well, let's uh, let's check that out. Thank you so very much, Rishi Chidananda. Thanks to Unity Online Radio and to everyone listening. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.